in a world where jobs are how most people make money. One man, one desire, one challenge dares to break the mold. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where we don't work for money. Money works for us. Coming soon. Viewer discretion advised. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where cash flow is king. Real estate investing, the means, so you can enjoy your retirement dreams. This is the show where we cut right to the chase. No sales pitch, no long monologues, just simple how-to real estate investing advice, so you can earn the passive income you need to enjoy your retirement today. And now, your host and chief old dog, Bill Manassero. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. I'm your host, Bill Manassero, and this is the show where 50-plusers and anyone else who wants to join us get solid, no-sales-pitch real estate investing advice to help generate real cash flow. This podcast airs twice weekly on Mondays and Fridays, and if you aren't already a subscriber, shame on you. Go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, type in Old Dogs, spelled D-A-W-G-S, Find our podcast and subscribe. Well, today's guest is no stranger to the Old Dogs REI Network. Uh, he's a gentleman who has been on here three times, and uh, and I still think we need him on more. He is just a great resource uh, on macro as well as micro issues, and uh, he is, uh, well, I'm talking about Neil Bawa, and uh, the last show he was on was, uh, 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 it was very funny. It was in February, and we were talking about investing in the uh, coronavirus economy. But uh, right before that, we, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was not in February. Right before that, he was on in the February show. Uh, it's called the 2020 Market Outlook. It was in February before COVID hit. Yep. And uh, so it was just a, you know, business as usual, talking about potential uh, you know, market downturns, and uh, and <laughs> yeah. the next one we're talking about the explosion that happened after February. It, it was just, yeah. I mean, really funny. So, but let me just give you his bio, if uh, you. Uh, don't recall. Uh, Neil uh, brings uh, extremely strong strategic and operational experience to his role as CEO at Grow Capitus Investments. Neil sources, negotiates, and acquires commercial properties across the U.S. for 500 plus investors, maybe more now. Um, his current portfolio is probably uh, bigger than I had it here in this bio. Um, is uh, You you want to say roughly how many? We've units? crossed a billion and have about 700 investors. Oh, that's awesome. And, and how about uh, the number of units? Uh, 4,140. So awesome. Going up there. And it includes uh, multifamily, student housing properties, I believe. Uh, and this time it was nine U.S. states. Are, are you in more states now? That's right. So we're in, we're now in eleven states. So uh, seventeen metros in eleven states. Awesome. 
And Neil is a nationally recognized in-demand speaker at multifamily events, IRA events, and meetups across the country. Um, I don't know how many students you now have that have attended your multifamily seminar series. About 5,000 a year. So that's kind of a steady number. It grows by about 20%. Awesome. And you uh, still are very active in the multifamily university as well? We had to, we had to, since COVID, we haven't done events because, you know, I felt like the face-to-face events were more fun and interesting for me. Multifamily University is a tiny portion of our revenue, about Mm -hmm. 1%. Mm -hmm. And so it was really done to create engagement with the community. Um, But since COVID, the number of people that wanted to come face-to-face had fallen. So that's temporarily shuttered. We'll probably bring it back now. I see like that later in this year, I think we'll we'll resume doing some boot camps. It was really not a revenue initiative. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy the process of the transmitting those aha moments. So I haven't really done it in the last two years. And I have to say it was a distraction because our portfolio has almost doubled in the last two years uh, as we were just primarily focused on, you know, uh, creating investor equity. Yeah, well, when we talked last, it was around 2,000 units, so uh, it definitely has more than doubled, so uh, Mm -hmm. um, that's exciting. Well, Neil, welcome back to the Old Talks REI Network. Thanks so much for having me again. It's just just so fun to talk with you. I think all three of my previous podcasts here have been favorites of mine, and I refer people to your to your show all the time. Ah, well, that's great. Well, you have been a great resource here, and I know our guests love uh, listening to each podcast that you've been on. So uh, I'm looking forward to today as we talk about uh, real estate disru- disruptive trends, blockchain, mm-hmm. smart contracts, tokenism. I mean, uh, that's all very hot stuff right now. So. Uh, it absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. Maybe uh, you could just, you know, kind of bring us up to date what you've been doing and then kind of move into our topic here. Absolutely. So here's the background on what's happening in real estate. The disruption of commercial real estate is has been underway now for seven years. And most people still haven't noticed, Bill. So people are still like, real estate, we're doing things the old way. No, you're not. No, you're not. Let me give you some numbers. In 2014, the Jobs Act passes, and basically crowdfunding portals open. The first crowdfunding portal that really opened and scaled was called CrowdStreet. This this portal, which I'm not affiliated with, grows at 50 to 200% a year. The last time they published their numbers was basically in July last year. And they had raised $641 million in a single year, in one year. 15% of all commercial real estate in the United States now is crowdfunded. And that number is expected to be at 50% in just three years. Crowdfunding is a technology process. People from anywhere in the United States find these websites. You know, CrowdSuite's one example. I'm certainly not endorsing them. Like sort of up and down in terms of quality, but in terms of quantity, I mean, it's obvious that the world did change, that the real estate world, the commercial world did change in 2014. Here we are seven years later, we're at 15% of the commercial market and screaming upwards. The U.S. population grows at less than a half a percent a year. U.S. GDP grows at two or three percent a year. Crowdfunding is growing by 50 to 100 percent a year. At this point, it'll be half of the commercial real estate market in three years or less. So that's, and that's just a preamble. 
everything that I've just told you is the introduction, the baseball game hasn't started yet. The pitcher's still walking to the mound. He's still exercising his arm. We're about to basically get started with the true disruption of real estate. But even what has happened so far, $15 billion a year using pure technology to connect millions of accredited investors to commercial real estate assets, all of that happened in seven years. And now it's compressing and now it's accelerating. How's that for a preamble? That's amazing, amazing. Man, when you talk about disruption, I mean, I totally understand what you're talking about. Right. And, and look, at, look at the prices during that time. So 2014, Jobs Act passes, crowdfunding comes into, into being. At that point, cap rates in the U.S. are at seven, somewhere in the, in the seven cap rate range. Today, they're at three and a half cap, right? This essentially means that the same exact building is at least double the price. That's not keeping in mind that prices have actually more than tripled since then because rents have also increased. You know, prices go up because cap rates go down or rents go up. Both of those have happened in the last seven years. So the average price of a building today in the United States is between three and four times the price that it was in 2014. The U.S. as an economy is roughly, you know, our population has grown by about 4%. Our commercial property prices, 4x, 400%, right? So you see the impact of technology. This is what I've been saying. Technology, the moment you go from a completely illiquid asset class that provides cash flow to even somewhat level of illiquidity, which crowdfunding so far, I, I can't say it's a liquid asset class, but it truly has provided opportunity, large amounts of opportunity for investors to invest in multifamily, which by far, far and away, is the largest portion of all crowdfunding in the U.S. Looks like it's, it's more than two-thirds. But people have invested in industrial, in data centers, in marijuana-growing you know, buildings, in uh, hundreds and hundreds of other asset classes, student housing, senior housing. All kinds of things have all of a sudden become available to an investor. And while we are still at the beginning of this process, because this, these investments are still illiquid, unlike the stock market, which is liquid, unlike crypto, which is liquid, but just the availability, just access to 2 million accredited investors means property prices in the US, especially multifamily, have gone 4x in seven years, when the US's population has grown by 4% in seven years man oh, that's a, and is and is there still a housing shortage for the most part i mean uh, i mean we hear about it all the time i think the answer is very nuanced the truth is this we have seen absolutely radical slowdowns in the u.s birth rate in 2018 19 2020 2021 was just as bad a lot of COVID babies were projected they didn't happen so the U.S.'s population growth is slowing dramatically. This whole projection of 5 million homes short is now down to 3. And by 2025, it's going to be down to 1. So the home price shortage was based on birth rates, which simply don't exist today. So firstly, I don't think this shortage is forever. I think that within the next five five years or so, it's going to be dramatically low. However... What I do, do think that will happen is that in certain areas, certain parts of the U.S., and I'll name some of them, the shortage will be just as bad as it is today or even worse. Okay, And in other parts of the area, the shortage will be completely wiped out. 
So what is happening is, if you go back and look at the 80s, the 70s, the U.S. market was not one market. We didn't have an all ships rising effect. You could be having a meltdown in Houston at the same time as California going nuts. You could be having Seattle losing Boeing and you know, losing 20 or 30 percent of value at the same time as the New York market booming. Right. It was not one country. It was not one real estate. There were ups and downs. I predict that within the next five years, we're going to return to that point because what we are seeing right now in the U.S. is California, you know, my favorite state because I live here. By the way, I've never invested in California. So I have a one billion dollar portfolio. Not one dollar is in California. Okay. (laughs) Even though I I love California, right? I I, I love here, living here. I think I'll live here all of my life, despite the irritations that our overly liberal, you know, state government causes. But bottom line is, California has no population growth anymore because of, you know, despite all of the, you know, political talk about, you know, immigration, the numbers don't support it. Immigration to the United States, legal or illegal, is dropping, right? And has dropped spectacularly in the last four years, especially because the Trump administration was very hard on it. And because as immigration drops, the U.S.'s birth rate is dropping. So, uh, you know, California is forcing people out, firstly because of its liberal politics, but also because of its extraordinary cost of living issues. And so today, the strongest area in the United States, the Silicon Valley areas, the San Francisco, Oakland, the San Jose Metro, did not grow in 2021. No growth, flat, no population increases. San Francisco lost 15,000 people, right? And that is considered to be by far the most blue chip part of the United States. When that doesn't grow, what will grow? Well, the growth is going southward and eastward. The parts of the US that are growing rapidly, massively, are part of what we call the crooked smile. A smile that starts in, you know, in eastern Idaho, goes down through Utah, through Arizona, and then passes through um, through um, New Mex- parts of New Mexico, then goes to Texas, then you've got Georgia, you've got you know Tennessee, Alabama, and then North and South Carolina, Florida. It's crooked, it's a crooked smile. And then sort of goes up through North, through North Carolina and ends right there. So this weird crooked smile of states is just an allegory, but kind of gives you a sense of, you know, a Joker style, funny smile that you can draw across the US. That's all the growth. It's not some of the growth. It's just a ridiculous percentage of the growth. So cities like Phoenix, Austin, Tampa, Orlando, Dallas, Houston are seeing enormous growth where their population growth trends are 3x to 6x that of the U.S. And then there are cities that just are seeing no population growth, but everyone in those markets is still expecting home prices to go up the same way as they did in the last five years. These people... I mean, we are the worst kind of ostriches. People have their heads in the sand, magically assuming that without any population growth, they're going to get the same kind of real estate price growth, which makes no sense whatsoever, right? Sure, you can get some real estate price growth because of inflation. You know, your, 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 your rents can go up a little bit. But to assume that cap rates will not figure this out is outrageous, is nonsensical. People are not looking at the data. Five years ago, if I had asked Bill, Bill, what are the the top metros in the U.S. for 
lowest cap rates, highest prices per unit. Bill would probably say Boston, New York, you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Bay Area. And Bill would be right. Do you know today, the number one market in the U.S. for lowest cap rates, depending upon whether you're looking at suburban or you're looking at, you know, central business district, is either Dallas or Phoenix. And the one that is racing up the charts, the highest growth rate in terms of cap compression is Austin, right? New York is no longer in the top 10 markets in the United States in terms of cap rates, lowest cap rates, highest prices. New York is number 11. And California metros are screaming down that list. I expect them to be out of the top 10 within the next two or three years. That's evolution. This is what's happening in the United States. And people are not looking at these trends at all. Absolutely 100% heads in the sand. Now, is this crooked smile you refer to also the same regions where the housing shortage is going to be strong? I would think so. I mean, obviously, there is a strong correlation. It's not an exact correlation, but there's a strong correlation between housing market shortages and, and you know, secular population growth. So the, the overall answer is yes, but it's also a little bit nuanced, right? So, for example, Austin, right? Three-bedroom corner units in a branded residence community called the Four Seasons on a river in Austin are $9 million. $9 million for three-bedroom condos in a branded community. It's a Four Seasons community. The funny thing is the Four Seasons isn't building this community. Some builder is basically licensing the Four Seasons name and building a community. That, that kind of product, all of it is just changed. People don't want to buy a second home in San Francisco anymore. What most, most people don't, ima- don't understand is rich people love to buy real estate even if it's not really, it doesn't really make sense from a rental perspective. They just buy condos, they buy, you know, townhomes, they buy all kinds of stuff. And so where they buy affect the markets. And for a long time, longest time, rich people wanted to buy stuff in California, New York. Now they want to buy stuff in Austin. Look it up. Austin is currently the hardest market in the United States for people looking to buy second homes. Where rich people go, everyone else follows. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's crazy. I mean, where do you think it's going? Well, it's going towards, number one, real estate in the next 10 years is going to be really great for certain places. And I think it's going to be not so good. I'm not, I know I didn't use the word awful. Not so good in certain places. So you're going to find that eventually, Home, new home construction will catch up in certain areas. Uh, again, we are the, all of these estimates, we are 5 million homes short, we are 3 million homes short, they assume a U.S. birth rate that simply does not exist anymore. And I don't think it will exist in the future unless something drastic happens, right? COVID simply accelerated already existing secular trends towards having less kids. So, you, you you know, in the next four or five years, we, we're going to have to be careful. We're going to have to redraw this perception of real estate always goes up. Remember, we're back to thinking that most people are back to thinking real estate always goes up, even during COVID. COVID basically, you know, created this feeling of, well, if it, if it doesn't go down in a black swan event, then it can never go down. That's not true. There are things that support real estate growth, and some of those things are weakening in the coming four or five years, which is why it's so, so important 
to look at demographic trends and make your bets on metros that are extremely strong because you're safe there. They still have massive population growth. Phoenix still has 6 X the U.S.'s population growth, right? So does Austin, so does San Antonio. Markets that are doing phenomenally well are, are safe for the next five, six, seven years as you make your bets. Others are not. And what's going to make it more complicated is if you remember, I started saying everything that happened with crowdfunding in the last seven years is a preamble because crowdfunding bought real estate to millions, right? It did, commercial real estate, right? I gave you the numbers, they're crazy. 15, uh, you know, um, percent of all commercial real estate now is crowdfunded. That's a huge number because it was zero seven years ago, right? Now imagine the liquidity problem being solved. Real estate is illiquid. When I invest $100,000 into a syndication, that money is stuck there for five years. Five years from now, there will be no commercial real estate syndicator that will be illiquid. So we only got five years from here, from 2022 to 2026. Just like every commercial syndicator today uses software to, you know, to manage their investors. It's called investor management software. It's almost universal at this point, though five years ago, nobody had it. I didn't have it. Most other people didn't have it. It's just a requirement now. Investors demand it, right? Just like that, five years from now, an investor will not invest in your project if it's not liquid. And how are you going to create that liquidity between now and then? The answer is tokenization. Everyone has to tokenize their product. And alliances will be formed. Groups will form together. They will create you know, the same token. And all kinds of interesting things will happen, allowing investors to trade their tokens. And all of this trading of tokens, all of this liquidity is tied back to one completely uh, you know, unrelated event. Now it's extremely correlated, but it's unrelated. In 2009, right, the, you know, a, a unknown programmer created a cryptocurrency called Bitcoin. That, you know, basically created this crypto rush that you see. But the problem with Bitcoin is you could, you could use it as a currency and people use it today. But it was terrible, absolutely terrible when it came to its level of intelligence. So in 2015, a, a, a different group created another um, currency called Ethereum or Ether, as, it, as we like to call it. And Ether was very smart. It had smart contracts. It had the ability for an issuer to say, instead of issuing certificates for my syndication, I'm going to issue tokens. And if someone's tokens get hacked and stolen, I can reissue them because of that smart contract. And if I want to sell this building, I can actually pay the profits to the token issuers and make the tokens null and void. So now you get the benefits of Bitcoin, the decentralization, the transparency, the access to every transaction on a worldwide ledger that no government can change. You get all of those benefits. You get a worldwide audience of people that have gotten very, very rich on, on Bitcoin and all of the crypto and are looking to you know, buy something tangible. You get all those benefits, but you also get the control that we have had at this point of time. And the money, the tokens. We're not, we're not you know, buying um, marijuana with these tokens. When we sell these tokens, the money goes into real estate. The same money goes into the same real estate 
Nothing changes, except now people have liquid access to those tokens. That is going to, in five years, completely change commercial real estate again. And and how is that? How is it going to work? And what's that going to look like? Bringing you know blockchain into, into real estate uh, transactions. So the short answer is this: it's not as different as most people think it is. That's just in people's minds. Okay. So if I would have told you in 2014, okay, well, I'm going to set up a company. And in that company, I'm going to build, bring 100 investors in, and each investor is going to invest, some investor is going to invest 25K, some will invest 50K, some will invest 100K, and I'll somehow manage to gather all of their money together, and then I'll buy a building with it, give them cash flow on a monthly basis, and then when I sell the building, I'll return all that money back to him, them, I will take care of their taxes for five years. You see where I'm going with this? You wouldn't have believed me in 2014 that this is possible. Not only was it possible, it's now the de facto way that people buy multifamily buildings in the U.S. Seven years. That's all it took to get there because there was software, there was support. Right now, there's hundreds and hundreds of startups offering the ability to white label your multifamily community and sell tokens. These same communities then tie to these mega exchanges right? The beauty is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a $2 trillion asset class. And while, you know, you don't have anything to do with the volatility of Bitcoin when you're trading, remember, your, your token has an underlying asset, right? Your token has an underlying asset. It's not like Bitcoin. Bitcoin goes up because people believe it will. When people are nervous, like when Russia attacks the Ukraine, within four hours, Bitcoin crashes by seven or eight percent. Then as people realize it's not the end of the world, it's just a regional conflict, it goes up by 7%. So it's based on people's emotions and feeling about the market. But real estate tokens have an underlying value. The building itself, right? If the value, if the token falls to 50 cents, guess who's going to buy all the tokens? The existing investors in that project that know it's doing well. So it has a floor under it, but it doesn't have a ceiling. It can go up. Because there's all these cryptonaires. You know, what's a cryptonaire, Bill? Anybody who's become a millionaire through crypto or mm-hmm. a billionaire through crypto, these people are called cryptonaires. Their governments, one after the other, are aggressively trying to basically restrict their use of cryptocurrency, right? Governments hate Bitcoin, they hate Ether even more. And so they're constantly trying to restrict them. Well, these cryptonaires have actual money in their wallets millions or billions of dollars. So when governments are trying to restrict you, guess what you want to do? You want to buy real estate with it, tangible real estate in the number one economy on the planet. And that's why these tokens will create international um, you know, flow, just like stocks do. But the catch with stocks is they're regulated by local governments, right? Stocks are regulated by local governments. And so not many Chinese people not many Singaporeans are buying stocks in the U.S. exchange. But the crypto exchange, they're not regulated in the same way. There's some regulation there. So it's, I'm not saying it's, in, it's a wild, wild west. But these are worldwide exchanges. Crypto trades 24 hours a day in real time in dozens and dozens of exchanges with tens, or these days, hundreds of millions of customers. What happens if those hundreds of millions of customers on the same damn exchanges can now buy multifamily using the same tokens that are in their wallet. 
that's what's changed. Wow. Now, is anybody doing this yet, or is this just something that, that we're easing into? The short answer is we're not in the first inning yet. The pitcher's still walking to the mound. So uh, in 2018, the first multifamily was tokenized. And it was in New York, and it was a dismal failure. They tried to sell tokens to um, to non-U.S. customers, and they failed simply because you know the, the the movement hadn't taken off yet. Today, there's about you know a hundred properties in the U.S. that are at some stage of tokenization. Tokenization has steps. So one of the big steps is if you're working, if you want to sell tokens to non-accredited investors, or you know basically anybody. You've got to wait a year after your offering is completed. So today, tokenization is not a way to raise money yet. The, I emphasize yet, right? It's just a way to take your existing investors and tokenize their assets if they wish, right? See, it's, it's completely optional. Every investor can say, I want to tokenize or I don't want to tokenize. Oh, no, I love I love you, Neil. You know, you're, you've made me money lots of times. Yeah, I, I, you made 50% annualized for me last time. Why would I want to sell my tokens? So there's going to be investors who are simply not going to care. Fine. There's going to be younger investors who already have crypto wallets, who are already trading actively. Right, right now, trading on the crypto exchanges is extremely, extremely high volume. Right? Those young people are like, hmm. I'm seeing these amazing, you know, jumps in crypto. Sometimes, I, you know, a coin like Luna Terra can go 2x or 3x in a week, right? So they're like, what happens if I take my token and, and a real estate token and I trade it? So these younger folks, the Gen Z, the millennials, are the ones that are going to be driving the tokenization. The older folks are going to sit back for a while. They're going to do nothing. But if the syndicator sends an email to you know, to everyone who's tokenized but are just sitting with their tokens in their pocket and never really put them up for sale and send an email and say, hey, we don't know what's really happening, but our token went from $100, which is its base value, to value to 200 You know, if you guys would like to monetize it, go ahead. How many of those older people wouldn't jump at that? If the project's only a year old and they're getting double the value, why wouldn't they jump for it? They would, right? So this is a process. Just like younger folks led the drive in the first three or four years on crowdfunding. They were the ones that were on crowdfunding portals in 2014, 2015, 2016. And then they dragged their, their older, kind of more risk-averse people in by 2017 when crowdfunding really exploded. And now it doesn't make a difference. The older folks are the ones investing the most amount of money in crowdfunding portals. It took them six or seven years to get there. It's going to take less time on the tokenization side. Why? Because on the tokenization side, there's liquidity. So before, the older folks were like, no, I'm investing with, you know, on some portal. I have no liquidity. I'm worried about it, right? But once they realize that now they can invest with the same people, the same exact people, but actually have liquidity with the tokens if they need that, wouldn't the adoption rate be faster? So what crowdfunding did in seven years can be done with tokenization in five. Now, does tokenization bypass the SEC? No, it doesn't. So the short answer is the SEC applies the same rules with one exception. One year from the time you finish your raise, 
your tokens can then be traded on an exchange such as T0, T, the, the, the letter T followed by zero, and anyone can buy them, right? So you've got that one-year gap, which I think is awesome. I would never have wanted to release tokens of my projects in the first year because I want to show a year's worth of progress. If it's a new construction project, I want to show the project being built. If it's a value-add project, I want to show my rents being higher. And, and I want to control that listing on T0 and show all of the beautiful things, all of the upgrades that I've done. I want to show a graph that shows you know, my rents getting higher. I want to show a graph showing my net operating income getting higher. So I, I've now got a year to show it to people, right? And if I control that listing as a syndicator, people will come there and say, hmm, wow, this is interesting. The net operating income of this property was $100,000 when they bought it. And a year later, it's $130,000. That's pretty interesting. Not only is this property doing well, it's worth more. Clearly, these people know what they're doing. With syndication, you never had that. Because, sure, you could look at their track record for other properties. But could you look at their track record for this property? The one that you're buying into? No, because when you make the investment... You don't know anything about that property. But because of the one-year gap, the people buying tokens have a year's worth of performance. And so guess what's going to happen? The ones where the, list, the tokens are going to get listed are going to be the properties that are doing well. The properties that are not doing well, they probably won't list the tokens because they don't want the value to go down. So liquidity will emerge, and, and there will be a very strong emphasis on performance in the first year before you start listing the tokens on T0. That one-year gap, only the U.S. SEC has it. I think it's extraordinarily smart. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the older folks out, you know, that are used to investing in syndications to get cash flow on, you know, a monthly or quarterly basis, mm -hmm. um, how would that change with tokenization? doesn't change at all. So the short answer is, let's say two people are investing, right? And one's called Bill Manacero. He invests $100,000 into a syndication. The second person's name is Neil Bawa. He invested $100,000 into the same syndication. So they're in the same property. But Neil chooses to tokenize. Bill chooses not to. The property now cash flows, you know, a year has passed. The property is cash flowing at 10%. On that $100,000, Bill is receiving $10,000 worth of cash flow. On that same $100,000, Neil is receiving $10,000 worth of crypto, worth of Ethereum in his wallet. Now, you could say, what if Ether goes up and down? The short answer, the day you receive Ether, within five minutes, convert it to USD. Exposure to cryptocurrencies in tokenization is only if you wish to be exposed. Otherwise, just move the rents. Move the rents from your crypto wallet, which is tied to your bank account. Right? Tokenization requires the use of Ethereum or, or some equivalent currency you know, think of it as Bitcoin, but you're not required to keep it in Bitcoin. Just move it to the bank a few seconds later. How much can a token or, or, or a cryptocurrency change in a few seconds or a few minutes or even a few hours? Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, kind of mind-blowing to think of <laughs> that, that would um, that would. But now you're exposing it. your token to an audience worldwide, right? An right. audience that is... About roughly, think about it, the U.S. accredited investor audience 
is somewhere between two and four million people. There's a lot of argument on whether it's two million or four million. So I'm not going to get into it. But the worldwide audience of crypto users is already 100x that size. Right now, if they keep it in crypto, um, you know, how does the tax reporting happen in you know at the end of the year? So, firstly, you know, I for a while you may be able to add, get some benefits there. In the long run, though, you know, the U.S. government is far too smart to let you get away with. So, currently, I, I know there's some tax loopholes there, but in the future, it's going to be taxed like everything else that you've got. So, as this builds up over the next three, four, five years you're going to end up having to pay taxes on it because guess what? Coinbase or Binance are going to basically have to submit W-2s. Every time crypto arrives in there, there's going to be W-2s. And keep in mind, if the token is coming from a syndicator, the syndicator is issuing a W-2. Remember, uh, or sorry, a K-1. Remember, the syndicator gave you that money. They gave you those dollars. Just like Bill got 10000 Neil got 10000 Right. The fact that Neil got 10,000 in cryptocurrency doesn't change anything. Right. And by that, that'll still be on a K1. That will be on a K1. So okay. the, the answer is the, this. This is all evolution that's happening now, Bill. But in the end, there's going to be some K1 methodology that is going to be followed, especially for U.S. based investors. If the investors outside the U.S., things are going to be different. But your audience, my audience are people in the U.S. You're going to have to follow the law. Right. right. So that's that's the beauty of this. I mean, think about this. You, you can trade 100 stocks, even if you only have $10,000, correct? Mm -hmm. How much of a tax benefit are you getting out of that, except for capital gains, which is a built-in tax benefit? You're not getting any tax benefit. The, the government has designed the market so that there are clear ways to capture it, like E-Trade. You use E-Trade, they report on a K-1. You know, or, or they basically tell you, okay, this is the profit that you've made. They also report that to the to the IRS. How? Why do you think that Bitcoin would be any different, right? Because these are real estate profits that your syndicator is uploading. So there's not going to be much of a difference. There's marginal differences right now. There's things that you can do that you can get away with. This stuff is all. These loopholes are going to get closed over the next year or two. Hmm. Yeah. Right. So keep in mind that while you can move crypto anywhere in the world and keep it in a wallet and the government wouldn't know about it, the fact that you are investing into a real estate syndication means that you're going to be subject to laws. Think of, you know, crowdfunding as tokenization, you know, zero, you know, version zero. As we move from tokenization version zero, which is crowdfunding to version one, the government will, the SEC will update the laws. You know, in 2014, the laws were not clear on crowdfunding, didn't prevent it from happening. They, they, they clarified it again and again over the years, and now we kind of know where the taxation stands, and there's no extra benefit to crowdfunding of taxation, nothing that I'm aware of, other than the usual depreciation-related and cap gains benefits. Same sort of thing's going to end up happening for tokenization. Fascinating. Wow. What's interesting is I do think that there will be incredible taxation benefits for non-U.S. residents. And so the demand for U.S. product will increase because how would the U.S. government police hundreds of millions of token buyers outside the U.S.? Sure. Right? So I think there's going to be a loophole. It's not for us, but it mm -hmm. will increase the value of the tokens. Right. 
But the SEC, I mean, they track when people are out of the country, right? It's, um... No, only Americans when they're out of the current country. Mm. So we're, we're, I'm not talking about Americans. I'm talking about somebody who is Chinese or Korean or Singaporean that's buying a token in Bill Maricero's syndication. Oh, okay, I see. The SEC doesn't track that person. Right, right. Right? But they're still getting a tax benefit if their country doesn't track it. Most countries in the U.S. do not do a good job of cross-border finance. So there's loopholes, right? Until today, we didn't get any benefit from the fact that these companies don't track it. We're about to. Right. Fascinating. So, yeah. I mean, this is, this is revolutionary. I always start with this preamble because people are like, you know, real estate is still being done the same way. Well, why do you think the prices are up 4x if the population's only up 4%? What is the purpose of multifamily? To give people shelter. How is it that the United States has a 4% increase in population and a 400% increase in price? Mm -hmm. Because real estate is becoming a tradable commodity. Right. Tradable commodities, by their very nature, their value goes up because they're being traded. Yeah. Right? The average yeah. multifamily hold 20 years ago, eight years. Average hold now, less than three years. Trading. Yeah, man. It's changing very quickly, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's, it's evolving and it's changing very rapidly and we've got to keep up with the changes. There's so many, the, the 2020s are going to be much more challenging for real estate than the 2010s were, even though you know, 2010, 2011 were pretty challenging for real estate, maybe even 2012 in some parts of the US. And then after that, we've just had one long party. That's right? crazy. So I don't think, I, I think this is now a sporadic party. Some parts of the U.S. will keep partying and some parts will have trouble. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Wow. Well, Neil, this has been, this has been fascinating. Um, just uh, kind of mind-blowing here, too, at the same time. But, uh, um, wow. Is there anything you'd like to sort of uh, drop in that we might not have had a, ton, a chance to address? Well, I think it's... Education is key. So we have a portal called multifamilyu.com. If you go there, there's, you know, there's uh, thought-provoking articles and webinars there that are stored about our thoughts about what will happen. We, we have a trends presentation. We have a disruptive trends presentation. Those are two different ones. Uh, we've got a presentation coming up on tokenization. We have one coming up on prop tech, which is a completely different beast that we haven't even gotten into today, right? PropTech's changing the way property is, is being sold and purchased in the United States, and that's going to have an incredible impact on, on property. So the best thing to do is to go to multifamilyu.com, register, and watch for these webinars. We do these about eight times a year. As we come up with new content that shocks us or excites us, we prepare very elaborate, you know, webinars on these with videos and, and you know, um, research that we share with people. I think that that's probably the best way to keep up uh, with this rapid change in technology. That's great. And, and what if people want to reach you uh, just to find out more about what you do and, and your investments and so forth? I think the best for if you're an investor, you know, grow, G-R-O, capitus, C-A-P-I-T-U-S dot com. Um, it has our projects. But to be honest, even then, the best way is just to Google me. It's just N-E-A-L, Neil, Bawa, B-A-W-A. Just hit enter. 
and you'll learn a lot about me. You'll learn a lot about what it is that we're doing. You'll see, you know, our presentations at dozens of conferences. Um, I think there's uh, 150 podcasts that you can listen to. And as you go through that process, I'm sure you'll be able to see some of our opportunities. If they seem interesting, you know, take a look at our track record. It's improving all the time. In fact, this year we have three exits happening in the next six months. All of them are predicted to be over 50% annualized returns. So, you know, the, the key thing is to ease yourself in on that side first. See if you understand, agree with our philosophy because we have a disruptive philosophy. It's very forward-looking. If you feel comfortable with that philosophy, then you can always reach out to us for investment. No hurry. That's great. Well, Neil, this has been great having you back on. Man, always. You, every time I talk to you, you've always got new information for me and our listeners, and uh, I, I really appreciate it. Sounds good. It's, it's a blast to be back on the show. Thank you, Bill. Great having you back. And I also want to thank all our old dog listeners out there for joining us. I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing right now, but the fact that you've taken the time to join us means a lot. And we really appreciate it. Please note, uh, everything that Neil has talked about uh, will be outlined in detail in uh, our Old Dogs website in our show notes section, uh, which is the olddogsreinetwork.com forward slash blog. And look for the episode with Neil Well, that's the show for today. Remember, cash flow is king and real estate investing the means. Until next time, keep moving forward and may God bless. Thank you very much for visiting the Old Dogs REI Network. We would greatly appreciate if you would stop by iTunes and let us know what you think of the show. We would love if you could subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and write a review. The more ratings and reviews we receive, the more visible the podcast will be to others. Thank you.